People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We have a very full show with someone who is no stranger to the political following audience in South Africa. If you follow News24, you are reading out the name Ralph Mantheka. He is an analyst. He gives a lot of input into the political de- discussions and debates around what is really most probably one of the most exciting political scenes in the world. And he is here to discuss his new book, Ramap- Ramaphosa's Turn, Can Cyril Save South Africa? His publisher is Tafelberg. You come, you publish by one of the most powerful publishing companies in <laughs> South Africa, and they really do push the authors. And uh, we have a, it's a great pleasure for us to have you in the studio. We can pick your mind for the next half an hour and find out what your thoughts are of Ramaphosa and what's happening in South Africa. But before we get to all of that, we have to get to you. Can you please introduce yourself? In your own words and on your own terms. Uh, thank you so much, Stephen. It's always difficult to try to introduce myself. I think you got me there. Look, I grew up in Limpopo, did my primary school there, did my high school there in Limpopo. And then I went to VETS, graduated in, uh, uh, from VETS, uh, finished master's in politics. Been writing a lot around politics in academia. And I lived in New York where I was a student uh, at the New School for Social Research. And I worked in Cape Town. I lectured and I'm here with you. Thank you. I like the fact that you define yourself more than just being a, a political analyst. You know, your whole life from the, from childhood all the way up. Because most authors just say, oh, "I wrote this book." So <laughs> you more than just the book that you are. Yeah. Please, can you give us some uh, a little bit more biographical details? Mm-hmm. Where how you decided to become a. Um, uh, a researcher mm-hmm. and you're, you're, you're working with clear content research and consulting and how you got to News24 mm-hmm. and what your interests in politics was. You know, uh, Stephen, uh, indeed I've had a very, I consider it a very interesting upbringing, the journey that I went through. I mean, I did my high school in a rural, in, in a village, and communities were very much involved there. Our school was the best. We almost attained 100% pass mark by then. I matriculated then in 1994. So I grew up through that, you know, you come to university at VETS, I, I met many people that I had not met before. I started interacting with Indians, whites, colors, whatever race you can imagine. And you can imagine growing up in that area uh, from the village and then coming to VETS, a very intimidating university, and you had to cope and survive. You learn to make new friends. You learn to have a new family and so forth. You learn a lot about people. And it is while I was at VETS that my interest in politics actually uh, uh, took off. And I, it, it was not planned. I, I finished honors degree. I remember graduating with, with, with BA, and my professor said to me, what are you going to do, Ralph, next? And I said, I don't know. He said, I have a plan for you. I've got a scholarship. Can you stick around at the university? Then I did. It was Professor Tom Lodge by then. And, uh, you know, I, I then went to master's. I started realizing that actually, Stephen, you can read books and, and, and get by and, and live a decent life because I was surprised that, hmm, what these people want from me is just to study and pass and they pay my fees 
and I, I get a good stipend here. Hmm, this education thing seems like indeed it could bring good results. I started pushing myself, uh, focusing a lot on politics and law because I, 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 I went to the law school at VETS. So I always had one foot in the law school, one foot in political science. So after then, when I was at VETS, I had a master's. I just didn't want to work because I, I, I said to myself, I just want to see the world. I started to picture myself uh, studying overseas. You know, I wanted more challenge. And I applied. Then I went there. I had fellowships. It's when I was in the U.S. that I started taking a lot of interest in public affairs and in being a political analyst as a career, as a, as a contributor to the public discourse. I started reading a lot. And I always say to people that you can differ with Americans with whatever you want, their foreign policy whatsoever. You can differ with them. But one thing that you can't differ with Americans is that they do engage in their public affairs. I mean, New York was just bubbling around 2003. Uh, President George Bush wanted this second term and so forth. There was a whole lot of uh, things happening and I, I watched TV then. I was a postgraduate student had all the time. I watched TV. I could see discussions and I said, I want to take this thing very seriously at home. When I go back home, this looks like it's fun. It's, it's, a, it's less boring, if you like. No offense to my professors who taught us, no doubt about it. And I, I thought it, it's less boring, it's more interactive. And when I came back, started working as a researcher, I took interest in, 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 in writing in the public discourse. But also you know you know how we are as a society. One of the most intolerant societies. Let's be honest about that. People are angry with what you say. Sometimes you offend people genuinely and you don't even have a time to put together an apology because they're already attacking you on the basis of other issues. So I have learned when I came back to appreciate the space and to respect everyone and, and, and to do more work in contributions. Uh, also to try to give a picture of South Africa to the global community because I contribute views to the New York Times, I contribute to the Washington Post, foreign policy, uh, the BBC, foreign magazine, I will write a guest uh, column for the Guardian of London. So I took it upon myself that I have to be fair, I have to be truthful. I don't want to take side, but I do take a moral side. The moral side is that the truth needs to come out. The vulnerable should always be protected. That's how I came about in this. The key message in my writing is to take, the, and even in my contribution in, in the public media, is to take some of the difficult concepts in political science and ex use them to explain what we are experiencing in our society in the most accessible language. I believe uh, humankind, our political uh, uh, men, uh, kind, they have to understand politics. So I try to present it, and that's how I ended up being committed to this, doing a column for News24 and, and doing columns for other foreign media that uh, they always converse me for views on South Africa. Your, your, your list of <laughs> publications you submit you, you submit copy to is very impressive. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's inspirational to hear someone who's so passionate about the public discourse and defending the vulnerable and the truth mm -hmm. will out. You know, we're living in a world of yeah. fake news. Exactly. So th the pursuit of truth is so important and it's yeah. it, it needs to be, you know, you can't have you can't have public discourse with incorrect information. Exactly. And and the power relations in this public discourse I believe as a nation as South Africans we still need to talk. 
You know, we need to have uncomfortable discussions about ourselves, look at our race relations, look at how groups relate to each other. And and I'm saying that the richness of the public discourse maybe can help us to understand, to come back to the table. Because after all, we are humankind, we are humanity. After all, you, you look at the, the big differences, you find that it's the struggle for resources sometimes. But there is more that bring us together than that which divide us. So my idea in the public discourse, my contribution and my writing in the public discourse is to say that there is something maybe bigger than us, something nonpartisan, something about our own survival humanity that we must always say irrespective of the differences this is sacrosanct is bring it brings us together we need to find that and and rekindle that as south africans that 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 is the the idea i have in my work in this. So that's the philosophy underpinning ralph matheka's work we're having an ad break right now and then we're going to get deep into the book ramaphosa's turn straight after the break people of the book on 101.9 high fm this is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are speaking to Ralph Matheka. He is a political analyst. He's a columnist for News24. He writes for the longest list of foreign publications, including the New York Times and The Guardian and The Washington Post and Foreign Affairs. And we have him exclusively for the next 20 minutes at our, in our studio. And we're going to ask him questions about his new book, Ramaphosa's Turn. This book follows on your previous book, mm-hmm. When Zuma Goes. Mm-hmm. Now, it's no longer when because he did go. Yes. And now we've got Ramaphosa's turn. What's the central thesis of mm-hmm. your book? How do you see Ramaphosa as a president? You know, uh, uh, I'm glad you, you, you linked it with the previous book. I think there is a story of evolution of leadership that needs to be told about South Africa. There is, a, there is evolution. Leadership is changing. Under Mandela, we've seen a particular leadership, Mbeki and so forth. But in, in, in this story of leadership, it's not just about the individual leaders. It is not completely uh, shaped by the individual leaders that we are talking about here, Mandela, Mbeki, Ramaphosa, and Zuma. But it is also the deeper stories about how society relate to leadership. What is the society's expectations? In the book When Zuma Goes, I wanted to make the case that uh, South Africans want to say the big problem they have in their society is Zuma. And I was saying, no, it is you as a nation about your expectations of leadership, how you relate to the leadership, the space that you create in society for the emergence of a particular leadership. So I, I had argued that even when Zuma is gone, the, 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 the political project of corruption, of using state resources to benefit a few, a few can be a faction, can be interest group, can be whatever you can imagine. It will always be part of our politics. And Zuma is gone, but not really fully gone. His politics is not really gone within the ANC. That is why I enter Ramaphosa. With Ramaphosa, I'm seeing an opportunity, only an opportunity. I'm not saying it's happening. It might not even happen. That's why there is a, a question mark at the end of the title. I'm seeing an opportunity for the NC, for this evolution of leadership within the NC, now to reflect a different culture of leadership. I look at Zuma, I look at Mbeki, I wouldn't talk about Madiba because his leader, he was quite charismatic, he's the father of, uh, of, of, of this nation. And those other two, Zuma and Mbeki, they represented a particular approach. Even if they are different, 
they are exile leaders. There is a particular tradition when it comes to how exile leaders want to lead. More often, they draw on the party's historical legitimacy, the liberation movement, which, according to them, it is the final uh, source of moral legitimacy for decision. When I look at Ramaphosa, he did not go to exile. He was not jailed for a long time in Robben Island and so forth. And he does not come from that exile leadership. What does that mean? What type of leadership does he would he inaugurate? What are the prospects for that type of leadership? I see a man who's come through mass democratic movement, the student movement. He has been in business. A man who has been among the most uh, uh, contentious uh, stakeholders in our societies. Our unions cannot stand the private sector. He served our unions. He has served within the private sector. He also linked the unions with the mass democratic movement in the anti-apartheid, which means he understands the power of street mobilization and, and, and lateral leadership. The question I ask is, are we seeing here the possibility of a shift in tradition? Because if the leadership is based on where Ramaphosa come from, the journey that is traveled, and if that is reflected in, 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 in government or in state institutions and within the NC, it will mean we are moving towards a more consultative type of leadership. But the NC doesn't like that. It, it, the question is, will the NC allow him to reground it from that traditionalist, what you can call a, a Russian-based type of a structure of a party to a modern consultative political party with much more lateral approach to leadership instead of the hierarchical one. That is where I think the contest is. Will the ANC allow itself to shift from that traditionalist approach to leadership? That is the question I'm trying to respond to by looking at various factors. What you've just said brings back so much of the book, and I read the book in a few days. I, I couldn't put it down. It was like, I often find reading newspapers frustrating because you want to get the bigger picture, and yes. each article is so small. Yes. You, the book gave the big picture. Thank you. And the, the complexity that you just described mm -hmm. kept coming back in my mind again yeah. and again when I read the book. From your vantage point, and you follow the ANC very closely, you mm -hmm. describe a very complex party going through momentous change. Mm -hmm. This is the Cambrian you know, evolution era. Yeah. What are the main factions within the party, and how do they challenge or back yeah. Ramaphosa? I mean, when you talk about the complexity of the ANC… You know I'm critical of the NC openly. They know members of the NC that uh, if I have to say a point about one thing they're doing wrong, I'll say it without hesitation. But there are certain shifts within the NC that I think are genuine evolution of a party. Well, maybe if they had better leaders, le better leaders would have responded better to those circumstances. But those circumstances will, will take place anyway. They will confront the party anyway. And I think the complex part of it is that we understood factions. Look at how this party is evolving, Stephen. In 2012, in, 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 at, at the uh, uh, Nazareth conference, we started hearing about the second transition of the revolution and so forth. That is when you started seeing groups identifying themselves. Motlante wanted to contest Zuma in 2012, and he stood on, there was this idea of the second phase of the revolution and so forth. There were some convenient ideological positioning within the ANC that were coming out. They then took the idea of factions where as you and I are sitting now from Nazrek, there is a group that is understood to be radical. 
who were pro-Zuma, and there is a group that is understood to be moderate, right in the middle, who were uh, pro-Ramaphosa, the incrementalists, if you like, those who don't want to overhaul the system altogether, but they want to get the maximum gain that you can uh, from the current system. So this party goes through that becomes faction. But then after Nazrek, it's not just about faction. It's about what I call interest groups. And I'm saying that we should not be held only to the, the view of factions when you look at the NC. The NC is evolving in a modern, complex society. It, it, there will be competition among people within the NC. Those, that competition will not be among a group that is pro-Zuma, anti-Zuma, Ramaphosa. No, it will just be interest groups seeking to influence the state. I believe that now they are entering that stage of interest group. There is already a suspicion that Mr. Ramaphosa might just be representing the business interest, if you like. And at the, on the other hand, we have Mr. Mabuza, who came from the Premier League. I don't think he's still strongly based within the Premier League. He has been very silent. I have not seen him taking a position that locates him in the same place as uh, Isma Khashule or uh, Supra Mahuma Pelu of Northwest. He's quite silent but he's still a power base when it comes to Ramaphosa's survival. The question would be, what is he expecting in return? What kind of politics would he be carving? Is it going to be the politics of interest group? That's why I'm saying, if you're going to look at the NC with the faction of pro and anti-Zuma, you're going to lose a point. There, are mu there is much more competition for power within the ANC. Those who believe in privatization, those who believe in social democracy, the state being involved to some extent, and those who believe there should be pure nationalization and so forth. That is what is going to play out as people are struggling for distribution, influence on distribution of resources. As a normal South African citizen who reads the newspapers or goes onto News24 and looks at the news headlines, <clears throat> listens to the radio, listens to Khan News, mm -hmm. Whatever it is, so much of what the ANC does is with so much opacity. opacity. You just yeah. can't see through the group yeah. speak. Exactly. You come with a book like uh, Ramaphosa's turn, you cut through, and you tell us what really are the variables happening within the party. And we get a view of the party that mm -hmm. the party is not giving us. But we need an outsider, someone who mm -hmm. knows what's happening inside to make it accessible. And I think to – not only is the value of the book in looking at what can happen in the future, but mm -hmm. it's also giving us an insight into the ANC in the immediate past and the current moment mm -hmm. and cutting open this very opaque box mm -hmm. and showing us the variables. We'll be back. We're talking to Ralph Matheka, political analyst, the author of Ramaphosa's Turn, and we'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9. I'm going to be very quick because we've got Ralph Mantheka in the show, the author of Ramaphosa's Turn, a columnist for News24, a researcher, someone who's very passionate about making South African politics accessible to the general public. I just wanted to ask the questions and then Ralph can answer them. Ramaphosa's challenges are legion within the party which you've already discussed, mm -hmm. from the opposition parties, from the constitution. You talk about, you know, Constitutional Hill in your in your book as a big challenge to Ramaphosa, international mm -hmm. relations. And we've got the BRICS summit right now in South Africa, and there is a lot of tension between Russia and China because of South Africa's role in giving China state a, a, a Xi Jinping, an official state visit, and yeah. not Putin. So international relations ready today yeah. are on the headlines of News 24. Yeah. Then he's got 
challenges with the corporate world, with the rural citizens of the country, and then with the black middle class, then with KZN. There are so many challenges. <laughs> Can you just lead us a little yeah. bit through this maze? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if I were to use one sentence to define Ramaphosa's presidency, it is a contested presidency. I would say it's contested in a sense that uh, ordinary people of South Africa have got their set of specific expectations from him as the president. Uh, ordinary citizens want to see government that is building the roads. We we know what is happening at local government since the Auditor General released the audit reports. They want to see local government that is functional. Ordinary citizens are also concerned about safety and security. They want jobs and so forth. They one government that can intervene to their own interests, not just to police the private sector. But the private sector itself also has its own expectations from the man. Uh, he went into this presidency uh, on the ticket of integrity. As someone who understands the difference between inflation and stagflation, he understands the economy. He was there within the private sector. There are expectations that he needs to be reasonable when it comes to regulating the private sector and so forth. On the other hand, you have his own party that has got its own expectations and they are willing to put their demands to this man to say, look, we want you to implement the resolutions we took in Nasrek. We want you to demonstrate that the NC regained its legitimacy as a majority party. But Ramaphosa keeps on reminding them that, but there is a legitimacy crisis here. You have lost that legitimacy in the past eight years under President Jacob Zuma and so forth. The NC doesn't want to hear that. They've got uh, demands. So the difficulty is, how will Will this man actually, who's going to win this battle? Is it going to be the private sector? Is it going to be the general public? Is it going to be the trade unions? And again, we look at maybe the unifying issues. Are there any issues in society that unify all these sectors that one could say they'll be happy with something from Ramaphosa's leadership? So that is why it is a highly contested leadership. For the first time in post-apartheid, South Africans are putting, are putting it out there that this is what we want from leaders. ANC, we can't trust you very much. Who does he choose from? Does he have to choose even in the first place? Can he build an institutional framework, an approach to leadership that will actually get all these groups I've spoken to around the table and hatch a consensus? He's known to be a man who has hatched a consensus at the constitutional negotiation. Can he do that? That is where the challenge is about this man's leadership. Highly contested. Everyone wants something from him. I'm waiting to see who's going to win or can he aggregate the best interest of them all? We don't have much time. What at this moment in time, that's very difficult to see even tomorrow, but I'm asking you to go to next year in the presidential elections in two minutes. Can yeah. you tell us what do you think ANC and Ramaphosa's election possibilities are? I'm placing them there at a moderate performance. You're 55, 56, not more than 60%. I'm also concerned that if they get too much of a strong majority, it will send a wrong message to the NC. The NC will revert to its majoritarianism, not consulting with small groups within our society and so forth. That is not acceptable. But I'm putting them at 55, 56%. I think they will have to pull a miracle to go above 60%. It's not unthinkable. That's all I have to say. Do you think it's a possibility that I get less than 50? It is possible. Own goals, it is possible. It, it, is also, it is also determined by how robust the opposition parties are. The oppositions are found wanting now. Time is catching up with them. The DA need to get out where it is and reformulate the message where we can take it seriously as a party. Remember, if you don't have a good opposition, you're not going to have a good governing party. This, these are the thoughts of Ralph Mantheka.
the book that we're discussing is Ramaphosa's turn, but you can see him in his columns on News 24 every week. It's been a great privilege and a great pleasure having both you and then earlier on Sue, the best that South Africa's producing novels, current affairs, books. It's been an absolute, absolute uh, mind-opening show. I think everyone should just read these books and engage with South Africa, engage with our politics, engage with the migrants, engage with South African society, and we can do it beautifully through the pages of a book. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks to your listeners.